This is the Scott Radley Show podcast. Today on the show, we are going to be chatting about all the weirdness that has been going on in the world. Some weird, some funny, some terrible. But we're doing that with the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio to start. And then later, we're going to be chatting about youth and adult mental health and autism issues. It's an important topic. Three experts in studio talking about this one. Stick around. That's all coming up on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Chatting with Will Erskine. Will is the guy who you, whose voice you hear often, occasionally. He operates the show. He makes the buttons go and keeps the music going and all the rest. Every once in a while, I like to bring him on or Lisa or Luke or whomever is doing it. Let them have their voice heard on here. And Will, terrible, horrible, tragic, repeated story from down in California this week with the mass shooting. Mm-hmm. The, the, this story goes on and on. And so in the wake of that... We've heard, again, we've heard the federal liberals and conservatives both making their case for stronger gun laws because somehow stronger gun laws are going to stop this kind of thing. This is going to, if we just have stronger gun laws, we're not going to have incidents like this because we have them in Canada too. And I started looking into it because I thought, wait a second, I think... Isn't California the strictest gun law state in the United States? And I, it is. if it's not, it's right at the top. It is up there, yes. It has just about the strictest gun laws in the United States. You need a state permit to buy a gun. You have to register your firearm. You, there is a ban on assault weapons. There is a ban on magazine capacity. There is a... Uh, carry permit required if you're going to take it out of your house. You can't openly carry a gun. You have to, um, certain weapons, assault weapons are restricted. There is a waiting period to get a gun. Background checks are required to get the gun. There's a red flag law. So if someone who knows you and knows you have weapons, they can call the police and the police can come and take those away if you seem likely to do something with those guns. They've got every single thing pretty much that we would ever in Canada consider having as far as a gun law. And yet we still have these shootings. Mm -hmm. It tells me that... Simply putting in stricter and stricter and stricter gun laws is not necessarily the answer that is going to create a peaceful utopia. I would have to agree to a certain point that gun laws alone are not going to change everything. They are not going to make everything hunky-dory. Why? Why? Well, because there are multiple issues at play, including, uh, you know, even if someone doesn't have access to a gun, you know, through legal channels. They can get their hands on them through other ways. That's right. They That's can, the point. But... Who follows the gun laws? When they put laws in, who are the people who follow the gun laws? That said, there are people who have taken part, uh, who have uh, gone on these uh, sprees, who did legally obtain their guns. And, I mean, I would have to say, let's look at the amount of events like this that do happen in Canada compared to what happens in America. We do have stricter laws. We do have significantly less amounts. And I would be interested to see how many in California and how many in other states with looser laws. I think, I do believe that there should be a tightening up of laws. Part of this is from personal experience, just with a a distant relative of mine who never would have done anything 
uh, violent, no- nothing dangerous. However, I, I, if I were someone who was overseeing uh, the the implementation of these laws, I would have uh, definitely questioned their ownership of these weapons and and why they would be considered safe to own them, and yet they were perfectly allowed to in the state they lived in. I just look at this and think the people who are going to follow the laws when you put in more and more stringent laws, when we had the long gun registry and all these kind of things in Canada, are the people who are the law-abiding citizens who are very unlikely to do something like this. The people who will get involved in stuff like this are either mentally ill or people who aren't probably going to be all that concerned with the rules because the guns they have are not registered weapons anyway. And so I think rather than, we can put in all the gun laws we want, what we also need to have is way more punitive measures if you are caught with an illegal weapon. It, so, so we're going to make it so that you don't, want to, you don't want to follow the law? Fine. But if you're caught with a weapon that is not registered, that's an illegal weapon, let's start with a 10-year prison sentence, right? Let's make it so that you are deterred from even thinking about having a gun and running around in a city. Again, though, when, when it comes to uh, laws of deterrence like this, uh, we're, we're addressing a similar issue as if we're uh, enforcing stricter gun laws for the legal ownership. We're dealing with the, with the gray area, the people in the middle who, uh, you know, look at it as the, the lazier people. The people who, if it's a little more difficult, they're not necessarily going to follow through with something. So if they're looking at, oh, I could get in trouble, you know what, I think I'll just go punch this person instead. Like, we're looking at, at just bringing it down slightly. But you're right, it has to be addressed from, from multiple angles. We don't want to come down really hard on people unless they've committed a horrible crime. And even in this country, how many times in the last few weeks have we talked about the correction system and, and the soft touch that they seem to be giving? If you want to get this lit- seriously taken care of, You make it so that it is so punitive if you're caught with an illegal weapon. It is so punitive that, yeah, there's still going to be people who are going to do bad stuff. But most people are going to say, wait a second, I'm just caught with an illegal gun and I'm going to go to jail for 10 years? Yeah, I think I'm not even going to bother with that. That's what we have to do. There's no... California has put in every single law they possibly can and they still have this kind of shooting. Simply putting in more and more laws, I don't think, is going to answer the problem. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a piece in the spec today. It was also in the Toronto Star. It's a column by a real estate lawyer out of Toronto who was asked a question by a client of his who had staged an open house while trying to sell their house. And when they came home, their carefully made bed had clearly been ruffled and used for... Let's call it hanky panky esque purposes by someone who came through on the open house. Now, I don't understand, first of all, how the real estate agent who hopefully would have been in the home could have lost track of someone long enough that they could have got into the bed and done such a thing. Ah, uh, there's your first clue, Scott. But this lawyer was asked about it by the client saying, What should we do? And he started doing some searching and discovered this is apparently a very, very common thing, that people are going to open houses so they can do the deed, apparently, in someone else's bed. Will, what I don't understand (laughs) is, 
Who thinks of this? Who has decided that somehow their Sunday afternoon activity is going to be going house to house to strangers' homes just to do it in someone else's bed and leave a mess? Is it a problem that I can I can put myself in their shoes or sheets and and imagine the mindset that leads to this? It is a problem. It is a problem. I'm not saying I would do it because uh, I I I I would have to say it is a bit um, weird. It's it's a bit. Uh, I mean, that's a relative term when it comes to things like this. However, I I would not necessarily be comfortable climbing into someone else's bed. I don't care if they've prepared their house for an open house. How how often do we uh, steam clean the sheets for that? I'm I'm just I'm wrapping my head around many parts of this story. Again, mostly the fact that this, according to this lawyer, when he did his research, this happens commonly. Yeah. Because I would have thought, okay, so there's, there is a person out there or a couple people who've done this, but no, apparently it happens more. An open house by its definition means anybody can come into the house and anybody can wander around into any room of the house at any time. Would that not discourage you or someone else from saying, let's jump into the bed and do this? That the fact that anybody could walk in at any moment, does, is that not sort of putting people off? I th- it sounds like it's putting them on. I, I think for maybe roughly a third, who knows? I think it is encouragement. I think that is the point of it all. Again, uh, not saying it's me, just saying I can understand. Uh, there, this this thing, this action, this behavior actually has a name, which I probably should not say on the air, so I won't. Oh. <laughs> but it is, um, it's not just beds. Apparently there are multitudinous people who go around to open houses and find closets or corners of the house or whatever else and do this. I, I Maybe I'm at heart too respectful or something. I just can't contemplate going into someone else's home for an open house and deciding that their home is open season for me to do that. It is, uh, yeah, it, it should not have to be added to the sign out front. This is what you may and may not do. Please well, sign a document before coming in <laughs> that promises that you will keep all your clothes on. Like I wouldn't even, honestly, I wouldn't even th- be comfortable using someone's bathroom in if I had to go in an open house because mm-hmm. that's not my bathroom. Mm-hmm. They don't want my bathroom usage in their bathroom. There's something private and personal about that. And that's only for a number one. <laughs> I don't even want to think about the other option. But this is a thing. This is a trend. Now, I, maybe this comes from uh, this. Now, I didn't watch all this series. I saw a few episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. <laughs> But apparently this happened in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which may actually say something. This may be part of the reason behind this, that fans of the show who (laughs) saw this happen on the show have decided that, hey, this is what we do. All all in honor of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm not sure about that, but I got to say, I think if they need a sequel to Wedding Crashers, we now have a plot. Okay, one more thing before we go to our last break. You look exhausted. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm, I'm flustered by this one because even if you somehow wrapped your brain around the fact that you were going to make the effort to go to an open house simply so you could do that, 
All right. If you somehow had decided that that was your Sunday afternoon activity, would you not at the very least after you were done, pull the sheets back up and kind of make the bed look unused? Kind of? Yeah. Cover your foot tracks. A little bit. Would you not think? Like as uh, maybe again, I'm missing the whole point. Maybe the whole idea of this is to leave, let everybody know you've done this, but I just don't get it. I just don't get it at all. I think we've done, in the last seven minutes, we've done a good job of coming up with a rough profile of the mindset of whoever did this. We got to go. But if I, if, if it was your home and you found someone doing this, I don't even know what the proper response is. Fire and lots of it. Fire? <laughs> like while they're in there doing that, you no, go out no, and set fire to their car? No, no. No, I'm talking about cleanup afterwards. Oh, just burn the sheets. <laughs> maybe. I would just set fire to their car outside, go, oops, sorry. <laughs> or maybe just use their car as a bathroom. No, I wouldn't do that. That's gross. We're going to come back with some special guests. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Once a year, roughly, I auction off an hour of the show because I, you know, for a charity. And this year I am delighted with who actually got the auction because sometimes it's just someone who likes to come in and do radio, but sometimes we have something really interesting we can talk about. And that is this time. We have three people who are in from the Woodview Mental Health and Autism Services. Michelle Bake Murphy, who is the Communications and Fundraising Coordinator. Chris Clattenburg, who is a social worker and clinical manager. And Catherine Dixon, who is a program manager of adult ASD vocational and LIFE, life day support programs. We'll get to what those actually mean in a moment. Thanks for coming in, first of all, to all of you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. There are a lot of things that uh, just in the name of Woodview, mental health uh, and autism services that are important things and relevant things for what is going on these days. And let's actually break the name down. Let's talk about two different parts of this over the next hour or so and start with the first part, with the mental health part of this. And I want to jump into it with this. There was a study that was just released today. It came out from the University of Pennsylvania. And the the headline on it is Social Media Use Increases Depression and Loneliness Study Finds. And it goes on and on and on to talk about how much of, while we all love to be on our phones and on Facebook and on Instagram and all these other things, especially kids are being really affected by this and not always in a positive way. How do we deal with this? Because there's no possible way. Chris, why don't we start with you? There's no way we're going to convince kids to not be on this stuff. Absolutely. They're addictive, just like anything is. But you have to put controls on everything that we do, no matter what it is. So as parents, you have to have controls on it. As teens, you have to have controls. And Unfortunately, that's the difficult part because it does become addictive. I'm sitting with an iPad and iPhone and I have my iWatch in my pocket. So it is addictive and it just happens. But that's where we have to sort of put it down and separate and go talk to someone. Why, why Michelle, do you think it is leading to such loneliness though? Because these are, it's supposed to be the whole, the name of it is social 
media. It is supposed to be bringing us together and making us feel like a part of a community and feeling connected to all of our friends. And it seems to be doing the opposite. It's ironic, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I actually work, I do the social media for Woodview and I'm in social media every day, but I pull back on a personal level for that reason. And I can see that over time, even the word friend has been a little bit mis- misappropriated by, you know, entities like Facebook. And so perhaps younger children yeah. and youth are not realizing that connection. So I think a study recently came out where younger kids are not actually having those true friendships develop anymore because it's all a cyber experience. Yeah, I, I was talking to a teenager, Chris, the other day, and uh, I said something about friends, and they said, well, I have you know mm-hmm. 530 friends, and it was like, well, you know the number? Well, that's how many is on Facebook. Absolutely. So we've now actually whittled it down. I don't know how many friends I have. I like to think I've got lots, but I couldn't put a number on it. Yes. But we've quantified it now that if you click like, that means you're my friend. <laughs> and and that's not it. Um, many of those people out of the 535, how many have they actually talked to face-to-face mm-hmm. and not over your mic or over your um, headset when you're playing a Xbox or a game, but actually met face-to-face? Maybe 2%? Of that 500? Maybe. Mm-hmm. So the word friend doesn't mean the same as it used to. That's true. Kate, I also, there is a part of this that I, and I, I heard this before, and it was a really interesting concept. And, and the idea is that social media has done something, especially with bullying, because we're talking about kids especially who are finding the loneliness and the anxiety and all this. There was a time if you were bullied at school, as bad as that may have been, when you left school for the day, you could go home and you could escape from that and you could have a sanctuary at home and hang out with your friends. Now, with this, if you're being bullied and it's online, you are 24 hours a day facing that. Yeah, and I think that's why where that higher rates of anxiety and depression really come in, right, is that you're constantly being exposed to potentially these negative situations, right? I mean, you have your phone with you constantly. That that information is constantly there for you. It's also constantly preserved on the internet. Um, so it's not even that, you know, maybe you're being consistently targeted, but that information doesn't just go away. It's still there. And it's there for, you know, tons of people to see and access. Um, and it really does create, you know, increased negative feelings for people, I believe. So you deal with kids. You all deal with children. I mean, that Woodview, a lot of the people, a lot of the clients is, is children. If a kid comes in and is facing this, how do you possibly now try and make it okay when they can't just get away from the problem? In the past, we would have said, just walk away from the problem, leave the problem. You can't do that now. How do you, how do you help them? Well, I work mostly in the adult world. Um, but it's there too. Yeah, it is there too. And and I find in the autism world, the ASD world, um, it can be a little more difficult because there are kind of social deficits that do come along with, with autism. Um, so for a lot of these people, those social networks are their primary social connections and making what we would consider typical social interactions are, are that much more scarce. Um, so a lot of the work we do is really just teaching around, you know, what healthy social relationships are. And, you know, for the our population, sometimes that does mean online social interactions because of, you know, social deficits. But how is that healthy? How can you make sure that you're not being manipulated, um, being taken advantage of, and those kind of, kind of more safety pieces? Um, that's a lot what we target with the adult uh, exact world. Same with the kids. 
Exactly is it the same the with same. the kids? Absolutely. Healthy boundaries. How do you know you're in a safe and healthy relationship? How do you shut down that relationship if it is not healthy? Mm-hmm. What do you do? And we give them skills to do that. See, because I could, and let me jump in there for a mm-hmm. sec, because I could, I would hope that as an adult, if you're facing this, you have the capacity, not everybody does, I, I understand, but you would hope that you have the maturity and the capacity to figure out how to shut down your phone or how to in some way escape it. But that would not be as easy for kids when this again is their number one social line of communication. Yep. And even if they change their phone number, somebody somewhere will find it. So you have to teach them how to use it and how to use it healthily and then how to shut down the people that are bullying, intimidating, or doing something that's against who they are. It's about skills and teaching them how to use it properly. Well, and, and, and I mean, it is, Michelle, also, we are, we talked about friends. Well, we're also talking about likes, things like likes. Mm-hmm. Your status with your friends is on how many people like something you've done. That and instant how gratification. Many, the instant gratification. Mm-hmm. But also, if I put a picture up there and nobody likes it, mm-hmm. that says that I'm not doing something right and I'm not cool and I'm not whatever else. That's a tough one to... And there's research behind that. I mean, as soon as you get You mean from the the social media companies? From the social media, there there is research showing that, you know, you have your increased dopamine levels. Um, Pavlovian. You you, you feel... Well, think about the relentlessness of notifications for us with our phones. And if you're a youngster that hasn't really had the time to develop that maturity, you're, you're going to constantly be going and checking, oh, did someone like, did some, you know, what is that notification? What's that little bell? And you're right, it is like Pavlov's dog. Right now, if one of our phones dinged, I guarantee you that every one of our attention would be on that until we looked at it. It's just, it's the reality. Well, and, and I want to go to Michelle's point, and it's that social comparison. Before, we would compare to the friends we had at school, a few friends, maybe 10, 20. Now it's the whole world. Mm-hmm. You can compare to 535 that you have there. And the, that's where the depression comes in, is that comparison to so many people. And nobody posts their crappy moments online, <laughs> right? True. Nobody posts a picture of a selfie when they've had an acne outbreak that day or something. It's only the perfect moments that they have. So now you have to compare yourself, Kate, to the everybody's best days of all time. Well, and not even just everybody's best days. Everybody's filtered and fabricated best mm-hmm. days. You know, you look at fitness models and things like that on Instagram and, and you're like, how, how, you know, I'm doing everything I can to, you know, look like that person person when that person doesn't even look like that mm-hmm. person. And I mean, that just goes so deep in so many layers in all forms of social media that the self that's put out, put out there isn't just people's best self. A lot of the times it's a fabricated self or the, the ideal self. You've just thrown me. I go to the gym after this show every <laughs> night and I was banking on looking like that. <laughs> soon. Now, I'm de- now I'm depressed. Uh, but this leads to some other parts about this because this, this study goes on to talk about now and we hear this a lot now. We hear a lot more. I, I do anyway. Maybe you don't because you're in this work. But I hear so much more now about people who are suicidal, who are harming themselves. Maybe it's because we didn't used to talk about it, Michelle, once upon a time. It's so true. And, but we and, hear it a lot now. We do. And there is a silver lining to that because we are talking about it more. So the fact that we're um, combating and reducing stigma, the fact that we are raising awareness of mental health concerns, you are seeing that increase in, increase in demand. And so agencies like ours are trying to catch up 
in terms of capacity to meet those demands. So it, it's an amazing and wonderful thing that it it's out there. Because is I, it? Because this, I, and I'm not, I'm not challenging that, but I've, I've been wondering lately about the idea of when we have so many people talking about it, does it normalize it and almost make it sound then like, you know, if you do this, we're still going to talk wonderfully about you when you're gone. I, I think it's important to talk about these things, but it's one of the things I've always wondered about is, is are we helping when we talk about suicide or that kind of thing a lot? Maybe we are. I don't know. I think that when we talk and we normalize mental health concerns like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anxiety, I think that's a good thing because then people don't feel alone and you're, you're, you, f- you feel a little bit safer. And it's, it's entering the workplace as well where the workplaces are becoming more accepting and creating wellness programs to support staff, which didn't perhaps exist as, as widespread as, you know, as it's growing now. Um, in terms of suic- uh, suicide ideation, that sort of thing, that wouldn't be my expertise, but I can see where you're coming from, where that concern might be there. Um, but then on the flip side, you're seeing a lot of awareness of safe talk um, classes and and the Mental Health Commission of Canada offers um, first aid mental health. So there, we're also seeing a lot of ways where families, caregivers, and and professionals are able to support someone, or perhaps even notice issues or red flags when they come up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kate, you look like you mm-hmm. were wanting to jump in at that <laughs> one, but no, and I just completely agree. I think that you know, I don't know if I would use the word normalizing, but I, I guess normalizing mental health as a thing that we as a society um, deal with in you know a large magnitude is is only beneficial. Um, you know, mental health, mental illness are illnesses. And, you know, we would never pull back to talk about, you know, having physical ailments mm-hmm. or, you know, what we consider typical health issues. I think that the same kind of approach to mental health um, should be taken and it should be just kind of accepted as something that we do um, deal with as a society. And I think all that does is set us up to better support people. And suffering has been forever, all through the ages. So this is ours. So we put it in the light so we can talk about it, so we can get help, so that you can make a phone call and you don't feel embarrassed or upset. And then we also have peers, peers helping peers, that have gone through it. Tell us, tell us your story. Let us hear your voice so that there's more connection. And social media pushes the connection away, mm-hmm. but we really try to bring the connection back together. Is there more, are there more mental health problems now or is it only, and this may be a theme as we go through the show, but, or is it only because we're talking about it more? Are more people suffering from mental health problems now? I wouldn't have the stats. I just think it's being brought to the light more now. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, um, the statistic we've, we're probably all quite familiar with is that one in five Canadians are affected by a mental health concern. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's someone in your family. It could be your neighbor. It could be a colleague. It could be a friend. Um, and so in some way, all of us are touched by it. It could be, and, and mental health is a, is a spectrum as well. So it could be someone who has anxiety or schizophrenia, that sort of thing. So whether or not it's um, increased, that wouldn't be for me to say. But I, I think it's it's a combination of increased awareness and the ability to talk about it instead of ignoring it and perhaps misdiagnosing it. This is a weird question, but is is it a mental health concern 
if it's diagnosed or even if it's self-diagnosed, is it the same? If I come in and say, I feel anxious, is that as problematic as if I have a doctor or someone else examine me and say, you have anxiety? Absolutely, because you're feeling it. So what are you feeling about the word anxiety that's making you anxious? And you still get skills for that. If you've been diagnosed, you have it by a professional. But that anxiety is still a feeling, whether it's diagnosed or undiagnosed. You still get skills. And I think it's important to note that, um, you know, mental health isn't something that people experience for the duration of their life. Sometimes people go through periods of time where they deal with, you know, mental health concerns. Um, And it can, it's not just this consistent your whole life. It can ebb and flow. And um, I think that, you know, um, yes, there's mental illness diagnoses that, you know, you carry your whole life. But I think that um, mental health is important to talk about for everybody and not just um, looking at it from a pervasive disordered kind of view. Michelle, you know, you, you talk about the one in five, and I, I've heard that number as well before. I think a lot of people have. I do, though, wonder, and we go right back to where we started. We've got this idea of social media and other factors in our society. It's not just that, but it seems as though we're creating more um, jump-off points to have these issues, anxiety or depression or loneliness or some sort of mental health oh, crisis, absolutely. that our society is finding new ways to create problems for us. I think that's something that we probably all feel to some degree, um, you know, just in our day-to-day lives. Um, who isn't anxious um, to some degree? And, and with the relentlessness of social media, of It's a good word. That's a great word, actually, relentless. It is relentless, isn't it? And whether, whether or not you're on Facebook... Uh, there are other means out there. Um, and if you have a child, then you're all, you, you should be following up on what they're um, involved in. Um, so I think as a society, you're, you're, you're right. And, and PTSD, uh, look at, look at the, the information that's coming out from that. Um, there, it, it's certainly there and growing. Yeah, it, it just seems like we're finding new ways to create anxiety and feelings of pressure. And, and it's a great word, as I say, life is relentless mm-hmm. now. And um, But on a positive note, I mean, there are amazing people out there who are really finding a vocation or a drive, a calling to supporting and to learning and to becoming more involved in their community. So so it isn't all doom and gloom. There, there are positives to it. Um, I can speak from experience in, in working at Woodview. I've been with Woodview for about two and a half years and the staff, they are the heart of Woodview. They, they go above and beyond and they're constantly doing whatever they can to strengthen families and to teach them how to be relentless um, not relentless. <laughs> <laughs> some days. Well, some days, yeah. <laughs> how to be relentless in positivity. <laughs> no, but to be how, how to be resilient. And because resilience is also important to teach. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about mental health. Before the first break, let's jump to the second part, to the autism part. Because when I was growing up, uh, when I was in high school, I knew one person who had autism. It was a brother of one of my best friends. I didn't really know what was different about him or why he did what he did. He sat in front of the TV and kind of rocked and just behaved differently from everybody else. Didn't know about autism, didn't know much at all, as I say, about what it meant. Um, the Center for Disease Control 
it actually estimates that back in the 70s and 80s, one in 2,000 children in the United States, I'm assuming the numbers would be similar in Canada, had autism. Today, they're estimating that it's one in 150 are on the autism spectrum. Uh, Kate, this is, um, this is something that falls into your area. Any idea why this is happening? I mean, I know that we don't have an answer. Nobody exactly knows what the answer is, but any theories on what is happening and why there's so much more? Yeah, so there is kind of a general kind of running theory around it. There, There isn't concrete. Um, I think the stats in Canada might be as much as 1 in 68, from my recollection. It's 1 in 68? I, I could be wrong, but I, I do believe that's the Canadian statistic. Um, the leading kind of understanding of it is that a lot of it is just through identification. There were probably much higher rates of, of autism, Um our whole lives, uh, we just weren't aware of that. And a lot of that comes from um, changes to diagnostic criteria um, and becoming much more specific in diagnosis. Um, Autism used to be um, kind of broken into three. Autism was one diagnosis. You may be familiar with the term Asperger's Mm -hmm. and PDD-NOS, pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, were kind of the three groupings. So- And are they similar? They are. So basically what has happened um, in the shift of diagnostic criteria is that they have been kind of put together um, on a spectrum. So now that's why we call it autism spectrum disorder rather than these three separate diagnoses. So through that in itself, our um, rate of diagnosis of what we would consider autism or ASD is going to increase because you're putting three diagnoses together. And if we're whittling it down to one in 68, though, are some of those very, very minor then that we would have once upon a time not even igno- not even thought of as being there? It's very likely. A lot of it would be kind of individuals you would just notice social deficits is where you would really see the difference and maybe some delay in um, schooling, some minor behavior, things that would be previously maybe passed up as being, you know, just kind of different or not a very strong student or or things that would really kind of get lost in our education and systems and things like that. Whereas now, because we have such um, a better defined diagnostic diagnostic criteria, um, we are able to kind of target that full spectrum. Chris, I'm not going to put you in the uh, position of uh, taking on your coworker, but I mean, but do you, do you agree? Do you agree that it is mostly diagnosis rather than something environmental or genetic or social or any other reason like that? I'm sticking with Kate in this one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because there have been some people who have thought maybe that there's something that we have changed in our environment or things, drugs you've ingested through food or hormones or steroids or whatever. There could be any number of things that we've done. Yeah. And I mean, there is some evidence to support a a number of reasons as to the cause of autism. Um, They do believe it's probably a combination between genetic, non-genetic and environmental factors. Um, But when we're talking environmental factors, we're not looking at the things like vaccines and things like that. They're probably more looking at just general changes in factory areas or things like that. Um, but I think really what it's boiled down to is it, it's, it's genetic. It's a biological thing. So if that's the case and you are the expert and, and it is, I mean, it is obviously not something, no, well, no one has a, no one chooses. This is not a choice to be autistic Mm -hmm. or something like that. How then do you treat something like this? Because we talked before about mental health. Mental health is something that you can 
come into. It can be something that something in your life affects you and therefore you start dealing with it. Autism is not that. When it is genetic, how do you treat a kid? How do you help a kid when it's something that is built right into them? So there's actually, this is kind of controversial because there's some changing thoughts around whether we should be treating autism or whether or not we should be um, accepting individuals with ASD for exactly how they come and um, just kind of supporting them through life. Um, the most evidence-based practices, particularly around um, intervention for children, is through something called applied behavioral analysis. Um, so basically, um, through these evidence-based kind of treatments, we just reframework how teaching of skills happens um, to basically try and boost them up to kind of close to or as close as you can to somebody, say, who's t a typically functioning peer. So even if we're not going, even if we're going to, what was the word you used before, to accept or to, to take them as they are rather mm -hmm. than, there still has to be lessons, there still has to be an ability to go through life though. Some of those things have to be taught. Absolutely. And I think that's really what it comes down to is how do you improve an individual's quality of life um, and, you know, kind of um, allow them to have the best um, of the world in front of them and using these kind of interventions, that's really what the goal is, is to bridge those gaps um, to improve quality of life overall. Chris, how successful can this be? How, how it, it, I suppose that if someone is a very minor, very on the, on the very minor scale, that's something that's easy and not easy, but easy mm -hmm. enough to do. But what happens when someone is, are, is it possible to really do that with someone who is at the other end, who's at the very, very extreme end of the autistic scale extreme is that is that the right terminology i don't know if that's the right terminology <laughs> like, uh, it's usually termed in like higher and lower functioning okay high so, so on the lower oh. functioning end is it possible to do those kind of things i think it's about community so um if you have a community of let's say a classroom that supports an individual that is autistic you're going to have way more success when you start having social isolation um and not being able to make friends that's when the difficulties occur so i think that community really is important um that has to be there whether mm -hmm. it's high functioning or lower functioning mm -hmm. um but again and tailoring the educational environment as well. I mean, um, we have an alternative school placement program called the Woodview Learning Center. And it started and it grew out of a need because there were young children that were not able to function in the regular classroom setting. And we have amazing staff that support kids 5 to 15 years of age. And they're essentially... Many, so many of them have wonderful success stories because they're able to learn the skills to then transition back into regular elementary or high school. And parents are thrilled and the kids can be, um, the, the you see a reduction in behaviors because they are able to express themselves and to feel more confident in situations. And um, that's just something that I see every day. Well, and that's, that's kids in a program that is designed for this. Are our schools set up to be able to handle a kid who is going to be s even somewhere in the middle of the range? Are, are our schools, are our classrooms designed to be able to do that properly? I think they are. In, for I mean, the in the part. public schools? They have individual education plans that allows the staff to plan for what that child needs. And then everybody is a part of it. 
And then, again, I'm going right back to the, their friends in their classroom. If they accept them, then that's going to be a lot easier for them to integrate into other classes or um, be supportive, be supported wherever they go. Um, they have IEPs to help them. Sorry, um, what, what does that oh, mean? Oh, an individual education plan. So okay. let's say um, uh, autism and depression, maybe. Um, then they will make... Um, um, accommodations for that. Um, if they have difficulty in writing, if they have difficulty in uh, processing, all that will be in that um, IEP to support them, to allow them to have the same kind of education that everyone has. And can all teachers Absolutely. Do this? Every school in Hamilton has this. Everyone. Really? Yes. Are you confident? No, we're not throwing teachers under the bus, no uh, Kate, but are you confident that most teachers are able to do this well? I think that there are gaps in the education system around supporting individuals with ASD. I don't think that comes from the teachers. I think that comes from lack of resources for the teachers um, to be able to um, work with the individuals designing these IEPs or de developing themselves, depending on you know the situation, um, to have the in-classroom support, um, and not just in-classroom support, but in-classroom support that has ASD-specific education um, that is able to be implementing the things that these people need to be successful, these individuals, these, these students. Um, I think what it really comes down to is just taking a person-directed, person-centered approach as well. So, um, you know, the goal doesn't necessarily need to be full integration for every individual with ASD. It's a matter of having the right um, education environment for them, whatever that means for that individual. You said resources. I know that over the last number of years, there's been an awful lot of uh, fighting about resources for autism that the government promises, has promised, the provincial government has promised things and not necessarily come through with things. Are the resources there? Are, are we, where are we in the resource world? Are we way behind? Are we on track? Where is it? I would say we're behind. Um, I would, will acknowledge that the Ontario government has really, um, tried to take a look at, um, reframe, framing the the way that we support um, individuals with autism, especially in the, the children's world right now. They've just, uh, in the last year, um, reframed things to use the Ontario Autism Program. So it's still very, very new. And I won't go into it too much because it's not my expertise. Um, but that is one area where they have, you know, kind of put funding dollars out. But then I think recently they've had to pull funding dollars back mm. again kind of thing. So we're kind of always in this this flux of, you know, the resources come, sometimes they go away. Um, in the adult world, we're constantly under under Because I've heard lots <laughs> of complaints. I've heard lots of complaints yeah. about the funding over the yeah, years. Yeah, it is a real, really big battle. How and much and of that is just, Michelle, because of the fact that, not to put too fine a point on it, but I mean, people who are with autism, who are dealing with this are probably not, well, they may not be voters per se. They may not be, they're not necessarily at the top of the pecking order. Oh, but their parents are very, very good advocates. So you can definitely um, count on. So they're not forgotten. No, no. We hear the, the parents, their voices, their concerns loud and clear. And one of the ways we try to meet um, the needs of families is, for example, we've recently launched um, a regular workshop and webinar series through our, our Woodview's Ontario Autism Program 
So we're able to provide uh, either in person or by webinar for free to families, caregivers, professionals, students, anyone who's interested in learning more, um, introduction to, to autism, Autism 101, um, what is ABA? So essentially your ABCs of, um, not to get too much into it, but for example, behaviors or visual strategies on how to help your child, um, to learn about emotional regulation. Um, so more of that is coming available and available for free and online. So. And Woodview and other agencies are, are partnering in, in that realm um, because we understand families are, are, are stressed, they're, they're so frustrated, there's so much um, that has been going on back and forth um, with the Ontario Autism Program. Well, how many families, you talk about families being stressed, how many families, and again, I know it's not going to be an exact number, but rough percentage, when they end up with a child with autism, have any idea about what it is they're dealing with? How many people actually have any kind of background or is almost everybody who has a child brand new into this then? I would say most families that I interact or have interacted with, it they weren't equipped or didn't have the resources available to them. Um, and a lot of people had to learn along the way and advocate for supports along the way um, and continue to advocate for supports well into their child's adulthood. Because where um, would they have learned this? Unless they had a, a sibling who had a child with it or they had a sibling with it, where yeah. where would you where would you know how to deal with this? Well, and that's it, right? There isn't a lot of awareness. And I mean, that is increasing, um, which is fantastic, but there's still a lot of work to be done in that area um, through parent advocacy, through, you know, agencies and through self-advocates with ASD. I mean, th those are the best people to, to get that information from as well, um, through education in schools. And just, you know, when we were talking about mental health, just that normalization piece, um, I think that there's work to be done um, in the disability sector and, and with mm -hmm. autism um, around that as well. And also recognizing the amazing and wonderful abilities of someone with autism. Um, for example, you're hearing more and more about companies, both in Canada and the U.S., that are focusing and, and, and starting to realize that hiring someone with autism um, is, is a great business you know, um, a decision because someone with autism who is perhaps on, more on the high functioning side has increased focus, productivity. Um, they are able to do repetitive work. Um, you see this with car washes or recently Entrepreneur released a story on a marketing company that um, is hiring adults with autism. So what we're doing with some of our programs like Life, the one that Kate manages, is is empowering and teaching individuals to be able to get to the point where they can function a little bit better on their own. And we also have, for example, um, a social enterprise that would be called the Green Grass Guys. So these are adults with autism in one of our um, older programs called the Manor, and uh, residential programs. And they have um, been building a wonderful company that essentially landscapes and it's great, and Kate can probably speak a bit more to that. Yeah, so I'm actually the, the manager for that program as well. Um, so our vocational services, they, we do. We have um, the lawn care. Um, we also have been able to expand that. So we have um, cleaning services that we offer. We're hired um, in numerous locations for cleaning supports, um, as well as clerical work. A lot of our individuals hmm. are, it's a real strength for them. So, and you know, we're constantly looking for new opportunities, um, you know, in the employment of individuals with ASD. You did mention a moment ago that uh, there is a genetic component, right? When we started this conversation, mm -hmm. 
if a person with autism gets married or has a child, is there any evidence that autism gets passed down? Is it a genetic thing that way? I don't think there's any solid answer to that that I'm aware of. I know that there's research developing in all the genetic pieces of it, but I, I don't have that answer. <laughs> um, I know that prior to, and again, going back just for uh, the couple of minutes we have here, that there was a lot of criticism of the last provincial government about funding. Mm-hmm. Right before the election, there was a promise of massive amounts of money to come to autism. They then got voted out of office. I have no idea what's happened to that. I imagine it's not coming. Does it ever get the sense, Chris, that this is a political thing as much as it is trying to solve a problem? Absolutely. Um, Every program out there would love more money. But what Woodview tries to do is be fiscally responsible with the money we do get. We don't always bank on getting more or hoping for more. We do what we can with what we get. And we try to make sure that we're um, using the programs wisely. We uh, talk to our youth and our families. Is this what you want? Mm -hmm. Are you getting what you need? We talk about youth engagement and family engagement so that we can service the people with the programs they want. Mm -hmm. Not what we want, what they need and what they want. So the money that we get we use wisely. We would love more, sure, but... I just hate the idea, honestly, that somehow this turns into a thing to try and buy some votes. Hey, right before an election, here's an extra billion dollars, and then when they lose, oh, well, sorry, that billion dollars is not there anymore. I mean, that that kind of stuff drives me nuts, whether it's autism or anything else. Exactly. They'll do it to whatever. And that's their business. But we know that what we get is what we work with. And, and we've, we've seen this. I mean, Woodview's been serving the community for 58 years. It's happened so, a few times. Over so the we've, <laughs> seen it, we've seen it go up and down. Um, but we get creative, to Chris's point. Um, for example, in Brant, in Brant uh, we, we listen to families. Okay, they're frustrated with a wait list. Or what, what can we do? So we're looking at options and creative ways of supporting them, you know, drop-ins at the library. Um, here in, in Hamilton, we do that as well. And for example, in Halton, we created a brand new program to address similar needs. So we're always trying to do what we can. Again, we're mostly um, ministry funded, but we're so grateful to the generosity of our donors, our grand funders, our, our you know, the foundations that support us because they help us to be innovative as we're always trying to be and to support the families in ways that we otherwise wouldn't if we just relied on ministry Well, funding. let's put that out there for a second because we have a minute left here. Um, if somebody was interested in helping out and they don't have a billion dollars through the government and they just want to make a donation <laughs> somehow, how can they reach out to Woodview if they were interested in doing something whether to hire a cleaning crew or a landscaping crew or to donate cash or whatever else, how would they do that? We absolutely would welcome any support. Visit woodview.ca slash donate. You can choose the program or the region that you would like to support in particular, or it can just go to the program most in need. Um, For example, we have Giving Tuesday coming up on the last Tuesday of November, and you're welcome to donate then, but you don't have to wait. You can just head on there now. Um, There are so many ways you can you can support us uh, sometimes gift cards for example because you would you don't realize this but so many of our families are facing economic issues as well because of mental health or autism challenges and they're not able to support the kids or they have to stay home with the child and not be at work all day so 
sometimes even just getting food on the table can be an issue. So we welcome that kind of support. If you can help us with grocery cards, for example, or cash to a program, to even subsidize the fee-for-service programs, to help families that have that that child that is aged out of other um, regular school-age programs to be able to take a fee-for-service at a reduced cost. Woodview.ca, you can go then to donate, whatever. Woodview.ca is the website uh, if you're interested in finding out more about it, if you're interested in donating, doing something. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.